If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Right there at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25. And we'll consider a short story from the end of that chapter this morning and uh, wrap up 25 and be in chapter 26 next Sunday. Have you ever had a meal that, for better or worse, changed your life? Uh, I'm not talking about the food itself, though that could happen. It could be that good, or it could be food poisoning, and that would change your life too. Um, but, but maybe the the what happened around the table. So maybe um, maybe it was the beginning of a relationship, you know, or maybe it was the end of a relationship, and that sort of changed your life too. Uh, maybe it had an impact on your career in a positive way or or a negative way. Maybe God used it to open up your eyes to some deep truth or His plan for your life. I can think about a, a cup of coffee that Andrew and I had that that changed our lives and that uh, led to us getting engaged about a month later. It was just a cup of coffee. But what happened in that moment, God used it in a unique way. Or I can think of a time when we were sitting and having a, a meal with friends just before we moved here to Kentucky. And the conversation that we had around that table, I can still remember it, led in many ways to our family deciding to move back here to Louisville. There's times where we have meals, and it's not necessarily the food, but but something happens in that moment. And today we're going to look at a meal, actually just a bowl of soup, that had massive ripple effects in the lives of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. So we've been looking at these these brothers, and last week we thought, thought about some of the unique circumstances and statements that surrounded their birth, the birth of Jacob and Esau. We saw that, like most brothers, they fought and they wrestled, but that their feud actually began in their mother's womb. So this is early on. Uh, we, we thought about the word that came to, to Isaac and to Rebekah that declared, unlike what was customary, that the younger would rule over the older, that the blessing and the rights of the firstborn wouldn't go to the firstborn, they would go to the secondborn, to Jacob. And in the span of a few verses, these brothers grow up. That's the thing with the Bible. You read a few verses and years pass. And so these brothers grow and we find that they were very different. Esau was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman, a man of the field. And Jacob, on the other hand, was was quiet. He was reserved. He was reflective. He was content to sit in his tent most days. And you can imagine their relationship, how they simply probably could just not relate to one another in many ways. Um, maybe they had spent time together as children, but as they grew, they just probably frustrated each other to a certain extent. Sometimes opposites attract, but that's not true with with Jacob and and Esau. Their differences probably led to them fighting, and they competed for the affection of their parents, and their parents bought into this game and played favorites with them. And, And so it's hard to really get into the tent of this family and know exactly what was going on, but it seems to me that it would have been a a pretty volatile situation most of the time. There may have been periods of, 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 peace, but they would have been followed by tension Uh, around the dinner table. Maybe there were conversations that happened. I imagine Esau having a booming voice, you know, and when he would get angry, he would just yell. And you can see sort of Jacob sitting in the corner smirking. He probably always had a sly comment. He knew what to say to get under Esau's skin, just like you know what to say to get underneath your sibling's skin. You know, we all know that. And and it it was a, a unique circumstance. And in the midst of this, the parents again are taking opposite sides. I just can't imagine what that would be like in that family. And in in our text this morning, we get a glimpse into one particular instance, one encounter between Jacob and, and Esau. 
And it reveals something about both brothers, but it reveals a lot about Esau. So we kind of get a glimpse at Jacob's character, and we're going to see that blossom in the chapters to come. But we really get a long look at, at Esau. And so as we look at Esau this morning, I want us to remember who he represents. He represents not only this, this brother in the family, but he represents the nation of Edom. And ultimately, he represents all those who reject God. He exemplifies the heart of a person who's, who is set on the things of this earth, a heart that despises the things of God. He's a warning to us. He's a warning to all who would walk away from God and choose to ignore the blessings of God for other things. If last week we saw God's sovereignty and his choice of Jacob over Esau, then this week we see the reality of, of human responsibility that is real. The fact that we are all faced with a real choice of either turning to God in repentance and faith or of valuing uh, of the things of this earth, of, of valuing what God values or of rejecting God and choosing to go our own way. And as we think about Esau's rejection of the things of God, these verses, they, they implore us to value the things of God above the things of the earth. I think that's the challenge this morning. Value the things of God above the things of this earth. You know, you may be here this morning and you're focused only on the stuff of earth, on, on temporary pleasures. You have woefully rejected God for all of your life. You're not concerned with him. You're concerned with, with lesser things. You're concerned with things that sort of bring immediate satisfaction. You think about the here and now and the, the call of God to, to honor him, the reality of future judgment. That's not even, it's not in your vision. My hope this morning is that God's word would expose that sin, that the Holy Spirit would reveal the Esau that maybe is in you and cause you to turn from these temporary things towards faith in Christ, that you would not follow Esau as one who who per, pushes God away, but as one who would, would turn and repent and believe in Christ. And for those of us who are children of God by faith, I want us to realize that there's a little bit of Esau in each of us because we all were Esau, right, before God saved us. We, we, we can all fall victim to an impulsiveness that, that seeks self-fulfillment and immediate gratification at the expense of seeking the, the things of God. Esau shows us a unique way that the, in a unique way that the character of those who ultimately reject God, but we should also be confronted as Christians with this call to value the things of God above the things of earth. And so let's, with these things in mind, let, let's, let's look at Genesis 25. I want to read just a few verses here, beginning in verse 29 to the end of the chapter. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Life is most often reactionary, isn't it? What I mean is that is that most often in life, who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, they, 
they come out, they reveal, they're revealed in, in spontaneous situations that come upon us. We are like a, a glass of water that you might imagine is filled to the top. And if it's bumped by the circumstances of life, whatever's in us is what's going to spill out. And we don't usually have time to, to think about what's going to happen or how we're going to react. We have to make a decision fast. Sometimes the filter on our mouth doesn't work and we say things that we didn't mean to say. We reveal what's deep down in us. We don't have time to, to process. Rather, we go through life and there's trials and there's circumstances and things that cross our path and they bump us and they reveal what's in us. And I think that's what happens here with Esau. That in this, partic- this particular everyday situation, Esau sort of reveals what's in his heart by the way he reacts. You can sort of picture him in this scene. He's been out working all day. He's probably hunting. And he comes in and he has used every ounce of energy this day and he is is tired he's tired he's he's hungry and the first person that he meets is jacob and so now he's angry because they just always make each other angry and all of these things combine to create sort of this volatile situation for esau there's an acronym that alcoholics anonymous uses it's called halt it stands for the words hungry angry lonely tired and those four things are said to be, if someone is struggling with one of those things, that it, it, it makes it more difficult to resist the temptation to, to drink. Now, Esau is hungry, he's angry, and he's tired. He may be lonely, I don't know. <laughs> but he's vulnerable, to say the least. And, and in his weakness, we see his, his true character. Now, before we look at Esau, though, just, just note, we should note that Esau is being targeted by his brother. Jacob knows exactly what he is doing here. Esau may be stumbling into this test of character, but Jacob has set this whole thing up. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the irony is that the hunter has now become the hunted. And and Jacob has set a trap, and Esau is getting ready to walk right into it. But if you look at the situation that Esau is walking into, it's, it's quite the test. He has to react to this situation sort of in an instant. And like with us, every day we're faced with these situations. We're, we're faced with factors all around us that influence how we're going to react. Some of them are under our control and some of them are not in our control. And I think there's a reminder here that as we're walking through life that we need to be vigilant. We need to be aware of the weaknesses that we have, of the, of the things that will expose those weaknesses. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, about identifying the things that we struggle with or the situations in our life that are difficult. But we should also be aware, not simply of our weaknesses, but aware of those who are going to test us. Jacob has set a trap for Esau. And we too have an enemy and we have enemies. Satan prowls around like a a roaring lion seeking to devour us and we need to be aware of that. But there's other things in our lives. Maybe there's relationships you have at at that that just they don't encourage faith in Christ, but rather these people just they discourage your faith. They push it down all the time. Maybe people at work draw you into conversations that don't reflect any kind of a love for God. Maybe you're at school and you have friends that would tempt to you to deny your faith in God by by your actions, just so that you can fit in. There's situations and there's people and there's all these circumstances that would that come across us and, and would cause us to deny God. And if life is reactionary, then we need to be aware of this. We need to walk through life vigilant with our eyes open. Like Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, we need to walk carefully in the world. Not as 
unwise, but as wise. We don't want to be like Esau, who's blown around by his impulsive desires. So what do we learn about Esau? I want, I want to think about four characteristics of Esau that we see here. And the first is that he's dramatic. He's dramatic. I think this situation is like the scenes of a, a high school hallway. No offense to you that are in high school. But I think Esau's a bit of a drama queen. Uh, there's so much drama here. This may be conjecture, but as I, as I look at the scene, I think we see a guy who's taken a simple situation and he has blown it completely out of proportion. So you see him, he storms into the tent after a day's work. He sees Jacob cooking some lentils, probably some red lentils. Here, I'll show you. These are red lentils. They're a little orange right now, aren't they? If you cook them up, they turn a little bit darker color, especially have spices in them. I don't know if you ever had some Ethiopian lentils, but they're delicious. They may look something like that, but they're good and they smell good. They're really good. So these are your lentils, okay? So that's what he comes in and he, and he sees these. He sees these, these red lentils. But they're red, which means it's like Esau's name. They're red like the, the nation that he will be named after. And the reason that is, is because this story and what Esau does marks him for the rest of his life. He is the red guy. He was born that way, and he his nation will reflect that. And this bowl of lentils, this bowl of stew, and how he deals with it marks him for the rest of his life. He enters in, he yells out, let me eat some of that red stew, I'm exhausted. And then later he says, I am about to die. Now we say, Esau, how bad is it really? You know, I mean, how hungry are you? I, you he's tired, he's hungry. Is he exhausted? Is he going to die if he doesn't have the lentils right then? At our house, we're not allowed to say the words, I'm starving. I get that it's an exaggeration to make the point, I'm, I'm really hungry. But we decided that there's people in the world that really are starving, right? They really, truly are starving. And so we want to be careful how we use that word because it has a lot of meaning. Now, we may be hungry, but we're very far from starving. And we need to, to be careful of creating a crisis when there isn't one. I think Esau is so volatile and dramatic that he has created some sort of crisis in his life. He's not thinking or speaking rationally. He convinces himself that this is a a life and death situation. He's so earthbound. He's so caught up with himself that when his stomach rumbles, it sounds like he's going to die. Some people thrive on crisis. Maybe you know them. Maybe it's you. For for them, everything is a, a crisis. But if everything is a crisis, then nothing is a crisis, right? And and then when something truly terrible happens, we have no emotional resources to deal with it. There's no one to help you because you've made everything a crisis. And so they assume it's not as bad because nothing has ever been that bad, really. I recognize there's different ways that we react to situations, different personalities, different emotions. But I, I just want us to think that, you know, the our world should not be thrown out of sorts by the delay of dinner or by some other small thing. Esau is so dramatic in this overreaction and his overreaction clouds his vision and it leads him to make some really foolish choices. And so I say it's okay to respond with emotion, but let's not blow things out of proportion because then we don't think clearly in situations and we react in ways that will cause massive problems for us. 
Esau's drama, though, is rooted a little bit deeper, I think. He's, he's not just dramatic, so think about this. Second, he is driven by his appetites. He is driven by his appetites. I think the reason his hunger is such a crisis point for him is because his whole life is dictated by his appetites. Esau is a man who has no self-control. He wants what he wants, and that's all he can think about. He is impulsive, meaning that he acts on impulse. He doesn't think ahead. When he wants something, he goes and he gets it when he wants it. This is how commentator Alan Ross describes the situation. He says, the verb used in Esau's initial appeal is a colorful one, feed me. It conveys the idea of gulping down food. The rabbis used it to describe the activity of cramming food down the throat of an animal. The paraphrase, let me gulp that down, might better capture his mood. Esau wanted to gulp down the reddish lentil soup Jacob boiled. The picture is of a wild and blustering man pointing and gasping. Red stuff, red stuff. Esau's like an animal. He's, he's more an animal than a man. He sees what he wants and he can't think of anything else except getting what he wants. And apart from Christ, this is who we all are. We are consumed with our own self-focused desires, and we can think of nothing else than our desires and how to fulfill them. And these appetites, they are hard to curb. In fact, apart from God's grace, they're impossible to curb. We naturally take all of God's good gifts and we turn them into idols that we worship, things that we'll sin to get or sin if we don't get them. It could be an appetite for food like Esau. Maybe you're driven by a desire to eat. It might be something worse. It might be something like drugs or alcohol. The desire for that consumes you. You can't control that desire. Your whole life is centered around the pursuit of satisfying that appetite. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's sexual desire. You're blinded by your appetite for, for images on your computer or for physical satisfaction. And that desire, it drives you. It's all you can think about. And it's so all-pervasive that you make foolish and self-destructive choices to get what you want because you're driven by your appetite. Maybe it's attention. You want to be liked. You want to be well thought of. And so your focus is on making sure that everyone knows who you are and how great you are. You fish for compliments, and when you catch them, you gulp them down, and that's what satisfies you. And you do whatever it takes to get people to say that they like you. Maybe it's an appetite for material possessions, clothes, shoes. Maybe it's, it's electronics. You need the latest phone or computer or television. Your life is centered on satisfying this desire, this hunger, this appetite for more and more stuff. Maybe it's entertainment. The goal of your life, the thing that you want to feast on is movies, and television, and the internet, you get fat on media, and it's always distracting, but you always make time for that, because that is your desire, it's your appetite, and you're driven by it. A million other things we could say, right? But if we are driven by our appetites, then we are faced with situations in life where, where, we, where we can pursue the things of God, or we can pursue these dyers, desires, and then we act on impulse. And if we're like Esau, what do we choose? We choose the appetite. We choose what we want. We choose this lesser thing. And being driven by the, our appetite, it goes hand in hand with the third characteristic of Esau, and it's this. He desires immediate gratification. He's dramatic. 
He's driven by his appetites, and he desires immediate gratification. The situation is overblown in his mind. He wants what he wants, and he has no ability to wait. He wants what he wants, and he wants it now. Was there no other food that he could get his hands on? Nothing else? I think what happened is he came in, and he smelled that soup, and he said, that's what I want. I don't care what's in the cupboard. I want the soup. I'm hungry, and that's what I want. And I'm not going to stop until I get it. And when our desires are in the driver's seat, patience, it flies right out the window, you know. Every desire we have, though, should not probably be met. And some appetites should be postponed. Often godliness requires that we should deny our appetites because they're opposed to God. Sometimes we just need to delay them and sometimes we need to redirect them. But a guy like Esau, he can't deny his desires. He can't delay them. He can't redirect them. He wants immediate gratification. And slowly we're getting to the core of what is in Esau's heart and the reason for all these other issues. Why is he so dramatic? Why is he driven by his appetites? Why does he want immediate gratification? The core of it all is this. He despises the things of God. He despises the things of God. This is where the whole text is pushing. Into verse 34, that last phrase, thus Esau despised his birthright. What's at stake? It's Esau's birthright, which represents his his place in the line of blessing. It's a double portion of blessing from his father, but also his communion with God. It represents the things of God. Yes, Jacob is conniving. He is ruthless here. He preys on his brother when he is weakest. It's premeditated, and he makes sure he's going to get what he wants. He asks for it, and Jacob and, and Esau says, sure, you can have it. And he says, no, you better swear that you're going to give it to me. Jacob is ruthless here. But there's no comment on Jacob's behavior, is there? The text doesn't say, thus Jacob was a jerk to his brother. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. For all the terrible things that Jacob does, we can say this. He valued the things of God. He went about them the wrong way, but he valued the things of God. He valued this birthright. What does Esau value? This is what Esau values. He values stew. Give me some food. This is what I want. What's his perspective on the birthright, on the blessings of God? What does he think about that? He says it's worthless. You can see the the contempt for his birthright, the way he eats. If you look at it there in verse 34, 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. It's like he doesn't even give it a second thought. We see he just, he despised it. He didn't care anything about the things of God. It's as if, you know, you could take this stew, this, these lentils, and you could hold them up to Esau and you say, Esau, would you like this? Or would you like the blessings of God? And for Esau, this is a no-brainer. Give me the stew. I care nothing for the things of God. I want the stew and I want it now. Because he doesn't value the things of God. He values his earthly desires. And we might be quick to say Esau is a fool. And he is a fool. But we are all born with this same sin nature. This same desire for temporary things above eternal. We value the things of this earth and the thing that bring, bring immediate satisfaction more than we value the things of God. That's who we are. And in our sin, we will all choose lentils over the things of God. 
We all reject God and we look for satisfaction in other things, in temporary things that never satisfy us. And our sin of rejecting God means that God rejects us and that we are under condemnation. We are sentenced to hell. But God comes to to Esau's like you and like me, people who value soup above his blessings, and he offers us what we really need. You know what Esau needs? He needs a new heart because he needs new desires. He He can't change these appetites on his own. This is who he is. He's just a guy who reacts. I want what I want and I'm going to get it. He needs a new heart. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so wonderful, because it's this beautiful story that that while in our sin we reject God and we deserve his judgment, he sends Christ. And Jesus comes, and Jesus values nothing more than the things of God. That's all he values. And when he's tempted, he never chooses lentils over love for God. He always chooses what's most valuable. And in his love for us, he dies, and he pays the penalty for our sin. He pays the penalty for us rejecting him. And the only way that he can, that, that our hearts can be cured of this bent towards loving things more than loving God is for us to turn from sin to repent and to believe in Christ. And the promise of scripture is that when we do that, he gives us a new heart. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has passed away and new has come, a new heart with new desires that wants the things of God. Are you Esau? Do you, do you have any regard for the birthright, for, for the blessings of God, for the things of God, for what God values? If you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, then you will do nothing but reject God. That's what we are hardwired all to do. You will not seek him and his ways. You will turn from him towards sin, and you will not seek salvation in Christ. But if God would come and open our eyes this morning and help us see, I am Esau, then we will turn and we will repent and we will say, I valued things like stew above eternal things. I pray that God would open your eyes to that and to give you a new heart this morning that longs for what really matters. For many of you, you have that new heart. I'll just remind you, it's not because of anything good in us. It's because God has helped us to see that. And when God gives us a new heart, we don't have the character of Esau in that we despise the things of God. So if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, you don't despise the things of God. You value them. But we can be like Esau in other ways. We can be dramatic. We can be driven by our appetites. We can desire immediate gratification. So what do we do when we see that part of Esau in us? How do we move away from these things? It's a work of the Spirit. It's wrought by faith. But I think as we want to work with the Spirit, here's here's a couple thoughts about how we work with the Spirit to see this love for the things of God take over the love for the things of the world. The first is this, is to cultivate a love for the things of God. To cultivate it, to stir it up in our heart. If we are in Christ, the love is there. We've been given a new heart. We don't despise the things of God ultimately. But our love can be drowned out by other loves, can't it? Have you ever gone back to something that you used to do and you say, you know, I forgot how much I love doing this. 
Maybe it's a, a store you used to go to. I forgot how great this store was. I forgot how great this restaurant was. I forgot how much I love this hobby that I used to do. I forgot how great this CD is. I need more of this in my life. For the Christian, the, the call to, to cultivate the things of God is much like the call to return to our first love. <clears throat> we can get lost in these things. It's the obedience to seek first. It's the call to obey the command to seek first the kingdom of God. It's not that the love for God isn't there and the love for the things of God isn't there, but it's, it's gotten drowned out. It's gotten covered over with this layers of dust because we've not, we've not cultivated, we've not exercised that muscle enough. I want to encourage you, if you are in Christ, then even now just say, Holy Spirit, give me a love for the things of God. And, and if he will do that, and then if we will walk towards him and, and, and seek to cultivate that, maybe it's we haven't spent time in the Word and in prayer. And that sounds so simple. But, but to wake up in the morning and to not be distracted by other things. To make a plan now. To say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed on God's word before I have breakfast. I'm gonna make sure that I look at my Bible before I look at my phone. Uh, to make decisions like that. Maybe, maybe it's a book that you need to read. You know, it's just, there is one book. I'm not denying the fact that the Bible is the main thing we need to read, but maybe there's just something, a devotional that you need to sit down and it's gonna, God would use that to draw you back to Him. Maybe you need to serve someone else in a selfless way. You need to take someone a meal. You need to watch their kids for them so they can go out. You need to, in an evening, you need to invite someone over, you need to invite people over for lunch, or you should just have someone out for coffee and, and selflessly serve them. Maybe you need to spend time in prayer. On your own or just call someone up and say, hey, we need to pray together. Here, when you come to church, we're cultivating a love for Christ. We're reminding ourselves of what's true and what's right. But let's pause and think, how in my own personal life can I stir up a love for the things that really matter, of things that will last for eternity? How can I stir that up in others? How can I stir up a love for Christ in my brothers and sisters in Christ? If we're going to have this increased love for the things of God, we, we can't just cultivate that love, but we also need to, to curb our appetites. So we do have these appetites. So the second thing we need to do is, is curb these appetites, is to, to, to try to squelch these other appetites. Our desires for other things keep us from cultivating a love for God. They suck us dry, or they suck all of our time. They can be good things. could be something like food. Could be relationships, could be entertainment, but it could also be sin. It could be indulging in sinful desires, and they keep us from coming to God. They keep us from cultivating a love for Him. So I think in the battle to curb these appetites, the first thing that we need to do is to go to God in confession. It's to confess that we have done this, that we have forsaken our first love, that we have loved other things more than Christ. We begin with that. Confession breaks the power of sin. We need to confess it to God, and we need to confess it to others. When we're ready to change, when we're ready to say, I'm tired of, of seeking after these things that, that don't satisfy me, and I'm ready to seek after God, we don't have any issue coming to someone and say, listen, I have not been doing this, because we are sick and tired of, of the sin, or we're sick and tired of being distracted, and we say, I want to change, and we'll tell someone, help me. And after we confess... We need to follow the words of Jesus, and we need to cut off our hand. <laughs> Remember that? It says if something causes, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, of course, Jesus isn't talking about literally cutting off your hand. 
But he's, he's, he's speaking of the fact that we need to take drastic measures to keep sin from growing in our lives. We need to recognize how dangerous this is. That we could get on the path of Esau to the point that we would sell our soul for a bowl of soup. So what, what are the relationships you need to cut off? Do you need to put a filter on your computer or some sort of a accountability software that would keep you from that temptation? Is there an addiction that you're hiding? Maybe to food, maybe to alcohol, maybe to drugs. It'll kill you. You'll be like Esau. You'll reject God for some substance that will never satisfy. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's the television. Maybe it's your credit card. What are the situations that are difficult for you? When are you tempted to live without reference to God? When, where, in, in what places are you tempted to believe the lie that God doesn't see or that God doesn't know? It could be simple. For instance, after lunch, I can be pretty useless sometimes. And I know that. I know that about myself. And I need to be vigilant because I can be lazy and I can be distracted. But laziness and distraction can lead to much worse things. And I need to be aware. After lunch, that's a tough time. It may be a place that you go often, somewhere that you walk, somewhere that you drive. And it leads you to anger. It leads you to jealousy. It leads you to envy. It leads you to lust. Maybe you need to avoid the mall. Maybe you need to avoid a bakery. Maybe you need to avoid a certain part of town. I don't know what it is, but there's places that we go to and it's a trap and we know it's a trap and we think that we can stand and we can't. Let me tell you one way to this idea of cutting these things out and it's, it's simple. It's to fast. How often have you fasted? We always think about fasting in terms of food. And there's a beauty to fasting from food because there's this hunger pain. I don't think Esau ever fasted. But there's this pain that happens and we learn how to say no to physical desires. And that leads into other areas of our lives. We say, my stomach hurts, but I, I, I love God more than I love food. And I'll say no to food now so that I can seek God in prayer, so that I can seek God in these different ways. That's what f- the purpose of fasting is. It teaches us how to say no to physical desires and to say yes to our great desire for God. But it doesn't have to be food. It could be one of these things. You could say, I need to fast from the internet for a week. I just need to cut this off for a little bit and restart. I need to fast from my phone at dinner time. I keep looking at it. I keep looking up stuff. I need to to block certain websites. I need to not go to this place anymore. I need to sell some stuff. This idea of fasting, of saying no to our physical desires, to say yes to the greater desire for God. Here's the deal. If life is reactionary... So we enter into a situation and we respond to it. If that's where we're at, if life is reactionary, then these things help us prior to that test. So we've cultivated a love for God. I love God. I'm memorizing scripture. I love his word. I know what is true. And then I've I've pushed away these other desires. And so when temptation comes, I, I know that this is foolish and I know that I love God more. And so I respond in the right way. If all we do is is keep reacting to life and we never in those moments where it's calm, step back and say, okay, what's true, what's real, then we will keep falling over and over again. Let's not be like Esau. Let's, Let's cultivate in our hearts this love for God. And let's curb these appetites, confess our sins, cut off our hand if we need to, fast, 
this this is where life is this this is where the the power to to be satisfied is esau was never satisfied think about it think about him taking that big bowl of soup maybe this is a lot of lentils maybe he ate a bowl that big when was he hungry again probably that night he's hungry again he's looking for more food he's never satisfied never satisfied and until you come to Christ and until we find our satisfaction in Christ, we will never be satisfied. We will always be hungry. We're going to look at another meal this morning, aren't we? At the Lord's table. And this is a meal that you don't want to reject. This is a meal that you don't want to turn away from because this is our life. Not that the the bread or the, the cup actually brings salvation. We don't believe that. But rather, it, what it signifies, this is a meal that changed the world. What it symbolized changed all of human history. And it's a meal that is, that is reserved for the people of God. It's not for those who would reject the things of God and choose the things of this world. It's for those who have taken a moment and have, who, who have been arrested by the love of God in Christ and come to him and confess sins and put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so if that's you, we would invite you to partake in this meal. We also ask that you've been baptized as a believer. We don't believe baptism brings salvation, but we do believe that 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 shows that you have made that break, that you have said, I am a follower of Christ and you have said, "I, I am not a follower of the things of this world, but I am one who will follow Christ. And so again, this meal doesn't bring salvation, but it, it symbolizes for us. It reminds us of where our life is. It's not in lentils. It's not in all these other worldly desires that we have. Our life is in Christ, and that's our only hope. And it reminds us of the unity that we have, the one bread, the one cup that we take from, is that that's what unites us all together. And so if you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, and if you have been baptized as a believer, then I would invite you to to join us in taking this meal. If that's not true for you, I'd ask that you just let it pass. And if you'd like to talk to me about these things, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but what we'll do, our practice is that we'll pass the bread and let everyone uh, take the bread first, uh, and we'll take it together, and then we'll do the same with the cup. But let me have a, a moment of silence, and then if I could, Henry and Lolit, would you be willing to help this morning, thank you. So let's take a moment of silence and prepare our hearts, respond to God's word, and then I will pray for us and we'll take the bread. Father, as your children... We know that in us, in our flesh, dwells no good thing. We are not children. We are not followers of Christ because we're better than anyone else. We are all like Esau. And yet, Lord, in your grace and in your kindness and your sovereignty and your goodness and your mercy, you have opened our eyes to see our sin. And to see that Christ is the Savior. He is the one who can give us life through his broken body and his shed blood. 
Lord, we want to remember that this morning. We want to pause and say we will never be satisfied with anything else, any food, any sin. We can only be satisfied with Christ, and we can only be saved by him. And so we want to take this meal this morning in a way that that exalts that truth. So, Lord, be with us now as we do that. Ask it in Christ's name. Amen.